So what do we trust in when we sin? Ultimately, we trust that we have a better plan than God. East and West, Season 3, Season Finale. It's funny, the timing of God's Word, and this message, this sermon that you're about to hear was recorded at the end of November in 2020. Now, let me tell you a story about what's happened this week. That would be the first week of February 2021. I have been struggling, and we have been struggling at our house with well issues. We live out in the country. We get our water from under the ground, got our own well, and it's always been great, right? When you turn on the faucet, water comes out. But this week, my goodness, uh, since last Sunday morning when we woke up, gave the girls a bath, that worked well, and that was the last of it. Uh, the sinks, the showers, the whole show, the pump had gone out. And the story gets better and more tragic, so I go to try and kind of a do-it-yourselfer when I can, and so I try to see what I can see. I get my voltmeter, check the electrical connections and who's getting power where and all that. And it looks to me, based on my not-at-all expertise, and in hindsight, I should have stayed away from it, that the pump was probably not working. And so, after church, I pulled the pump and I laid it out, had all this pipe out in the yard, had the pump, and I did some continuity tests. It looks like the pump was really bad. And I was getting kind of, you know, getting kind of confident, overconfident at this point. Home Depot, you know, that, uh, that store is an enabler, by the way, total enabler for people like me that need to stay away from these sort of projects. They sell submersible well pumps. We drove that night in the rain, in the cold, to Dublin, Sunday night, got us a pump. Brought it back, it was way too late and too dark and too wet to fool with it that night. But after school on Monday, I was gonna see what I could do. And so started putting the new pump on the pipe and dropping it down, this, that, and the other. Now there's a part of this story I left off, but it gets really significant right here. And uh, somewhere between a comedy and a tragedy. As we were putting the pump down, it only went about halfway. Our well's about 100 feet and it was only going about 50 and it was hitting some kind of obstruction. So that's the part I left out. When I was piddling around with things on Sunday, trying to get the pump out and things of that nature, somehow, some way, by just a, a slight flinch of the hand or turn of the foot or who knows what, I had dropped this piece of metal, it was a well casing cap, half of one, down into the well. And it was a total accident, happened in a flash, and I hated that it happened because I know you don't want things in your well, but I didn't think it was that big of a deal because I heard it go down, I heard it splash, and I figured, well, that's gone forever. It'll just sink to the bottom and no big deal. Well, it turns out that's a big deal. When you drop things down a well that can get hung up in the casing at, I don't know, let's say 50 feet. And that's exactly what happened. We had to uh, back up and punt on this one. We couldn't get the pump to go down. I called the man, right? Like the Andy Griffith show, just call the man. I wish I had done that from the beginning. And the man came out and he tried it, realized there was an obstruction, and he picked up on it immediately. He saw that half the well casing cap was gone. He said, you didn't drop that down the well by any chance, did you? And uh, he knew immediately that that was a big problem. I didn't realize that just such a little thing could cause such a huge, a huge issue. And by huge, I mean somewhere to the tune of uh, we're digging a new well and however many, five, six, seven thousand dollars that's going to cost. All because of the flick of a wrist or the turn of a foot. That split second when I knocked that thing down. Not that I'm kicking myself over it, but my goodness, I'm kicking myself over it. Anyway, 
the timing thing about God's Word is so funny because I'm posting, I was scheduled already to post this podcast on this weekend, this message from last year. And guess what this message talks about? In two different places, running out of water. And it's so funny to me how that worked out. And it made me feel a little bit better, though I still feel like a dummy for trying to fix something I knew I had no business fixing. Be careful of those uh, YouTube do-it-yourself videos. It does not make you an astronaut just because you've watched a space shuttle launch on TV, you know, so be careful with that. Hope you enjoy the message. Let's get going. It's the last one. It's the season finale. Maybe a little longer than the others, but you'll enjoy it, I think. And here we go. Come to the Father through Jesus the Son. That sums up the whole thing. I mean, that's it. Come to the Father. We want to be reconciled to the one who made us, our Heavenly Father. I hope that today's message will help you in that journey, in that pilgrimage that we're all walking nearer to God. And so if you'll open to the book of Isaiah, chapter 3, we'll see what we can see there. Isaiah chapter 3. My question for today, sort of to get this thing rolling, is... What do you trust? I want us all to sort of evaluate that as we go through this. What, what is it that you trust? And then I guess the follow-up question would be, how reliable is that? Whatever that thing is. To make sure we all understand what I mean or what I think is meant by the word trust, I'll give you a quick example. My wife and I were in Savannah this weekend, and there's the great Talmadge Memorial Bridge that goes over the Savannah River. It's not a suspension bridge. It's like it, though. I think it's called an expansion bridge. Wrong. It's similar, but it's huge to you know to someone from Cochrane, where the you know we have the Gum Swamp Bridge. It's pretty fascinating, but it's really something. And one of the we could see the bridge from where we were staying, so we saw a lot of it. And the uh, one of the things that became just sort of you don't even notice it because it's so constant is the cars going over it. I mean, by the, I don't know, thousands a day? I don't know. It's just, it never ends. They're going over it even now as I'm giving this sermon. And I doubt any one of them, or very many of them at least, are realizing how much trust they're putting in the army of architects and engineers and construction workers, people they've never met and never will meet who built that bridge, and they're trusting without even thinking about it, they have the faith that that bridge is going to get them over to South Carolina, to the other side. Uh, now, those who are scared of heights may put a little more thought into it than those that aren't. It's a pretty high thing. But that's trust. You're trusting the people who built the bridge to get you to the other side. And I think trust is where we put our trust and how reliable is it is the million-dollar question for our pilgrimage. We're only going to do the first 15 verses I'm going to break them into three sections. So let's start with the, the first part of chapter 3 in the book of Isaiah. See now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, all supplies of food and all supplies of water, the hero and warrior, the judge and prophet, the soothsayer and elder, the captain of fifty and man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman, and clever enchanter. All of these things are about to be taken away. In other words, all of these things, Isaiah is prophesying to Jerusalem and the southern kingdom of Judah. He's saying all these things that you are now putting your trust in, they're all about to take away. Do you think that, that my arm is too short? 
that these things are somehow better than me and beyond me and beyond my grasp. They're all going to be taken away. Supplies, food, supplies of water, hero, warrior, these will all be taken. Another little thing about Savannah while we were there, it's just, it's, it's bizarrely complex. The, the things that we as a society and our, you know, just the, the globalized modern world that, that moves things from place to place. So that you get on Amazon and you click on, you know, you, you want a new egg beater. Or if you've got a little extra money, an electric egg beater or something like that. And you click, 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 and you know, it's, it's at your door the next day. Little do we think about, or little do I think about, you know, the great cargo ship that brought it from who knows where. You know, with the one I remember seeing... We saw several go in and out of the river, but one was from Italy. One was from China. I only knew the ones that had labels, but you can look up online where around the globe these things are coming from. And they're filled with the things that we're wearing right now. One of the tour guides said that, talking to the, everyone on the, the, the cruise boat that we were taking, he said he would venture a safe bet that 100% of you that can hear me are wearing something or have in your pockets something that came across on one of these ships in the Savannah Harbor. It's an intricate, complicated society that we've got going on. The ship's coming and going. Somehow they don't hit each other. Somehow they don't hit the bridge, even though the tour guide also mentioned he's, the coolest thing he's seen is the great big ones. The crew will get up on top of them and they can touch the bridge when they go under it because it's, it's that close. They can only come in when the tide is just at a certain level. And then it gets offloaded by these massive cranes. And if you know we're not far from I-16, we know where it goes from there. Back and forth. These container ships get put on the, the trailer and then hauled around. Or it gets put on a train. And then it gets put on a FedEx truck or a UPS truck or who knows where warehouses and things. It's a complicated thing. Many people today are going to college to get a degree called logistics. You have to have a degree almost or do have to have a degree just to keep that spaghetti noodle of a society straight. And, you know, I kind of look at it and I think, this is impressive. I mean, it's amazing that we came up with this, that this, is, this has been built and seems to be working. It seems to be working. And I think that is not a bad thing, but it is something to not be overconfident in. It reminds me, I wrote down another verse that is from the book of Matthew. You don't have to turn there. It's a quick one. But it, my thought, my sentiments in Savannah, seeing all that played out in front of my eyes, it reminded me of what the disciples did to Jesus in Matthew 24. Jesus left the temple and was walking away when His disciples came up to Him to call His attention to its buildings. That's kind of how I felt. I mean, the temple to them, that was sort of their great bragging thing. Look what we, we being humans, look what we've built. And when I go to Savannah or any major city and I see that, I think, gosh, look what we've built. And so they called Jesus' attention to it. Hey, what do you think about the temple? You know, they called attention to its buildings. And Jesus replied, quote, Do you see all these things? He asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. In another, in another way of putting that, he's not impressed. He's not impressed by the efforts of man. And actually, that particular prophecy of Jesus was fulfilled not long later. Most people believe uh, that he was talking about what happened in 70 AD. What's that? 40 years after he said that line that, hey, you see all this fancy? You're, you're impressed by this? This is, uh, this is one breath away from not one stone being left on another. And a Roman general, when the Jews rebelled against Rome in 66 AD, a Roman general, Titus, 
destroys the temple. There's actually a very famous arch in Rome. It was built about a decade after that called the Arch of Titus. And Hollywood likes to use it whenever they want to set a scene of a movie in Rome. You know, of course, they're filming it in California on a soundstage or whatever. But just to make sure that the audience knows that we're in Rome, they show a picture of that arch. It's just a famous emblematic sort of Roman thing. Built in Rome, but it's commemorating the general Titus, who was later the emperor. Anyway, the point is, he destroyed the temple in Jerusalem. Only a few decades after they said, look at this awesome temple. That may reminisce about the book of Genesis if you want to show that God's been in the business of not letting us get overconfident for a very long time. The Tower of Babel. I wrote down another verse you might find interesting. This is from Genesis 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. You know, I'm thinking, gosh, wouldn't that be convenient? As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, quote, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. Let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the earth. Now y'all know that, that was directly read, but the emphasis was mine. The key words being, we will do this for ourselves, trusting in our own abilities. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the strong man boast in his strength, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he knows the Lord. The horse is made ready for battle, but victory rests with the Lord. That is so immeasurably easy to forget because we as a fallen species feel like, I mean, the ultimate lie of Satan is, you got this. You got this. Look around at what you, you and your people have built. You got this. You don't really need God. In fact, He's probably holding you back with all His restrictions and things like that. In what do we trust and how reliable is it? Now this next little quote, this is not a biblical one, but it's, it's, it's was funny to me. E.B. White was a famous essayist and he wrote Charlotte's Web. That's my daughters were watching that Disney version of that movie not long ago. They really liked it. I guess it was Disney. Anyway, he wrote an essay about New York which I've never been to New York. I imagine some of you probably have, but I imagine it's just Atlanta only bigger. It's Savannah only bigger. It's intricate. It's complicated. It's, it's bizarre and over the top and the skyscraper. That's the first thing I notice when I go to big cities like Atlanta is I look up and say, wow, you know, that's tall. There's something about height that just impresses us. And so that's my picture of New York is like that. And E.B. E. White sort of comically said in an essay called Here is New York, he said, quote, it is a miracle that New York works at all. The whole thing is implausible. Every time the residents brush their teeth, millions of gallons of water must be drawn from the Catskills and the hills of Westchester. I thought that was pretty great. Just to brush their teeth. I mean, think about that. Think of the water treatment plants and the, just the amount of clean water in and sewage out. And he goes on, I won't go into that anymore, but he goes on to talk about if, if a road worker digs up a sidewalk he, he opens up this whole can of electrical worms and somebody's got to keep all those wires straight. It's immensely complicated. So anyway, what do we trust in? Well, there's a certain sense like those people crossing the bridge. We trust when we flip on a light switch, the power comes on. When we turn on a faucet, the water comes out. There's just a sense of trust that when we open the freezer or go to the store, there'll be food there. And I do think, I don't know this, for sure, but I do have a suspicion that rural people such as ourselves 
probably have a better attachment to our existence than perhaps urban people who always get their food from the store. And I don't know that that's true. I guess it depends on the individual. But, you know, we live in a place where right across the street is a cotton field. And we know that that's going to make these clothes. And right down the street is a peanut field. And we know that's going to make the peanut butter and the corn field. We're, we're right there with it. We see the cows that we're eating, so to speak. We're, we're very close to it. We're working with the land and near those who work with the land. I don't know if that matters or not, but I, I think it does something important to us. Amen. But do we trust? What do we trust? And, and then the other question, how fragile is that? How easily could that be taken away? You know, Pharaoh had an impressive agrarian and you know, comp complex society built in Egypt. But when it came down to it, the fragility of it, I think, surprised him. You know, just something as simple, something as small and inconsequential and not threatening as a frog wreaked havoc on the land when it came in plague-like numbers. How fragile are the things that we trust in? 2020 reminds us in its own way, if there were a virus that we could do nothing about, what would we do about it? And I think, I think these things, you know, whether God causes this or God makes it, you know, it was the plague from God or was the, was the virus from God or were the frogs from God. Sometimes it's very clear. The frogs were clearly from God. The, the ten plagues of Egypt were clearly from God. Sometimes it's not as clear. And I don't, I don't know anyone that can really say, at least I don't have the insight to say, the coronavirus was definitely God's doing to get our attention or not. But what's funny to me or useful to me about that is that in a lot of ways it doesn't matter who caused it or, or whether it's from Satan or whether it's from God or whether it's just from circumstance. I think the part that matters is that it does remind us. It does turn us back to God. Whatever turns us back to God is doing a good service. I mean, the very fact that the world has fallen, what happened to Adam and Eve, right? Great pains in childbirth and thorns in your garden. You're not going to be able to grow crops easily anymore. You're going to have to earn it by the sweat of your backs. We've been doing it ever since. And you're not going to bear children easily. It's going to be painful. Humanity's been suffering from that ever since. The point being, you have chosen to do life apart from me. And I'm not going to let that be easy because if it's easy, you might like it. And you might get content living a life apart from me. So whether or not this virus or this plague or this invasion or, you know, the September 11th attacks or Pearl Harbor, if, you know, you, I, I don't want to say one way or another whether did God cause that, did the devil cause that. But what I do say is that all things can work together to turn us back to God as a people. And I think if they're doing that, all things can work together for the good in that way. That doesn't mean that they're good things, but they're affecting something in us that's very, very healthy. What do we trust in and just how easily can it be taken away? How ephemeral is it? Just a, a breath and suddenly all the things that we took for granted no longer available. Now there's one more verse before I leave this part behind. It, it, it almost seems unrelated, but I don't think it is. It's verse 2. So he's going to take away food and water, and we get all that. We've been over that, you know, the, the whole complicated superstructure that gets food on our table and spaghetti noodles on our plate and whatever. But verse 2 says he's also going to take away the hero and the warrior. Now, I think, you know, some things can be an idol for some people and not for others. For example, to me, a cow is just a four-legged creature that makes a good meal. I don't believe that a cow is, is a deity. I've never been tempted to worship a cow. 
But there are cultures and religions and societies that do. So I say that to illustrate the point that for some, some things can be an idol for one and a totally harmless whatever for another. Money is another example. Mammon, the worship of money, can be an idol and is an idol for many people. Greed and money can become an idol. That doesn't mean that money itself is an idol. Jesus and his disciples kept a money bag. You think Jesus is going to walk around with an idol? Absolutely not. And so it depends on your heart's relationship to it. But I do think that hero worship is real. I don't think that everyone that watches a superhero movie or everyone that, that reads a hero's journey story is by any means idolatrous. I don't think that at all, any more than I think everyone that eats a hamburger is worshiping a cow. I just think that it's possible. And I looked up some statistics that you might find interesting because I have seen, I mean, you don't have to walk but one or two aisles into a Walmart and realize that superheroes are a big deal in America. Superheroes are baked into our culture. When people look back on 15th century England, they realize that Shakespeare was kind of a big deal. When people 100 years from now or 500 years from now look back on 21st century America, I think our big deal is going to be superheroes. It's branded and stamped on everything from toothbrushes to bicycles to roller skates. It's just there. Walk down the street in any given town and you know, odds are before you pass five people, one of them is going to have on a superhero shirt. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. I just think that there could be, depending on your heart's relationship to it. So here's some box office statistics. You know, it's the place where they see how much money a movie made. And I looked up the top number one money-making films of all time. Of all time. Number one was a superhero movie. It was Avengers Endgame. It came out last year so from the Marvel comic book series. The number one movie moneymaker movie all time is a superhero movie. And then I went down the list and I looked at all the way down to number 30. Of the 30 most money-making movies of all time, 14 of them were superhero movies. And just to make it an even 50%, if you count James Bond as a superhero, which he might as well be, you get 15. 15 of the 30 movies are superhero movies. My point being, people really like superheroes. Why? I mean, what's the attraction to Spider-Man? What's the attraction to Superman? It's because they're self-sufficient. They are strong. They can handle it. That's what we all want. We want to be able to handle it. And we want to know that somebody can handle it. But don't trust that. These are made-up stories and made-up people. And as far as the warrior goes, they're humans too. Even the best Navy SEAL on the planet is but a human. He's as frail as you and as me. He may be a better shot. And he may have better equipment. The horse is made ready for battle, but victory rests with the Lord. I worry about this in my life, this idea of wanting to be a hero, wanting to be the man, wanting to be able to handle it instead of being meek and humbly saying, God, I can't handle it. I know that my own strength and even the strength of the best humans who ever were and ever will be is not enough. But I trust God. That's what we want. That's the position we want our heart to have. All right, moving on. Second part. Let's look at these uh, verse 4 in Isaiah chapter 3. I will make boys their officials. Mere children will govern them. People will oppress each other. Man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old, the base against the honorable. A man will seize one of his brothers at his father's home and say, you have a cloak. You be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. 
But in that day, he will cry out, I have no remedy. I have no food or clothing in my house. Do not make me the leader of the people. Boys will be their officials, right? Mere children, mere youths will be their leaders. I think about that and it scares me to death. As Kurt Vonnegut said, the scariest day of his life was when he woke up one morning and realized his high school classmates were running the country. <laughs> I get that. I mean, people I went to school with are senators now. People that I grew up in my or at least lived in my neighborhood are, are running the state and running the country now in a, in a way. They're the lawyers and the, the bankers and the farmers. They're the teachers. They're the preachers. They're, that's scary. That's frightening, I think. And I also think about being young and being in charge. That can work and has worked. Timothy did it. Paul said, hey, look, don't let people look down on you because you're young. You've got the Holy Spirit. Go with God. They will respect you. But it can also be a very bad thing. Uh, Paul also said, don't, don't make someone a preacher or pastor leader too fast because it'll go to their head. And I think of my first years teaching at the public school here and just how much I knew. You know, <laughs> took me a decade to realize how little I know. I mean, there were teachers in there in these meetings we would have. I look back, I say this pretty shamefully. They had been teaching. They had been in the classroom longer than I had been born. Like quite a bit longer. One of them almost twice as long. Had been teaching before I was even born. And things would come up. You know, I remember one was how they had these new, the administration had these new discipline rubrics they were going to implement, how to punish children through a system of check marks and things like that. And one of the veteran teachers said, uh, you know, this isn't how, I don't think this is going to work for these certain reasons. You know, there I was, you know, hand in there. I got something I'd like to say. I'd just like to make a point. These rubrics have been, uh, studies have shown that these rubrics are very effective. And, you know, because I went to college and, I look back on that so embarrassed that I said anything. If, if I had my whole beginning of my career to do over again, it would have been one piece of advice. Shut up, okay? <laughs> Learn from these people. Don't try to be in charge. This is not what you want. Uh, and it's very common for the young to, to know so very much. And so I think when verse 4 comes around, I'll make boys their officials. You know, that's not saying this is going to be great. They're going to have youthful energy. I think he's saying, I'm going to make dummies their officials. And there's nothing worse than that. If uh, I wrote down a proverb about this. Oh dear, where'd it go? When the, this is Proverbs 29. When the wicked rule, the people groan. And that's the fact. I mean, I think people stranded in a lifeboat, they're willing to row. They're willing to row until their arms cramp up. They're willing to row to the very last drop of their strength, even until the exhaustion, maybe even exhausting themselves to death, if that's what it takes, if they believe their captain. If they really believe their captain knows which way land is, they'll row to the last drop. But you sprinkle in some doubt as to the leadership of that lifeboat. This old guy doesn't know what he's talking about. This young fellow, he thinks land's that way, but anybody can see from the sun. We know land's that way. You know, you sprinkle in that doubt of the leadership and your muscle's motivation to row that boat drops drastically. A sprinkle of doubt it is a bushel's worth of, I don't want to row it hard anymore. And I definitely don't want to row myself to death. I mean, apply that little parable to the country, to the society, to a church, to a family. If you don't believe in the leadership, it's much harder to get motivated to pull the weight, I think. Uh, there's a, a few verses. I don't, again, these are quick, so I'll just read them to you. Job 29, 
which is a you men uh, homework assignment. Check out that chapter, Job twenty nine. I've heard one preacher say it's like the uh, it's like the Proverbs thirty one, but for men. Proverbs thirty one is the wife of noble character, and it describes what a a, a noble woman would be like. And uh, Job twenty nine is kind of like the man's version of that. But here's a few verses from it. Job said, when I went to the gate, like he's talking about back in the good old days before I was afflicted. When I went to the gate and took my seat in the public square, the young men saw me and stepped aside. The old men rose to their feet. The chief men refrained from speaking and covered their mouths with their hands. The young people stepped aside to show me respect. The wise and the old held silent because they wanted to hear what Mr. Job had to say. He was respected. He was revered. He was listened to. Verse 21 of that same chapter, Men listened to me expectantly, waiting in silence for my counsel. After I had spoken, they spoke no more. You know that thing about getting the last word in? That was Job. He was so revered and respected in his old age, for his age, for his wisdom, for whatever. They listened to him. And when he was done... Boom, Job has spoken. And that's not Isaiah chapter 3. That's not Isaiah chapter 3 verse 4. The young men are suddenly, they're not stepping aside. They're not shutting their mouths and opening their ears. They're taking charge. And that's one of the curses that's on the land. Or an even better story to illustrate this. You know, Solomon was the wise king. Prayed for wisdom and got it. Which is a good little lesson for us. If you pray for wisdom, you get it. That's a neat thought. Ask and you will receive. But of course, like all people, he died. It's kind of kind of like that C.S. Lewis line. He said, "Be careful about putting too much trust in a human. You know, even if it's a preacher that you really like, or a pastor that you really like, or a role model, or a mentor, or a parent that you really like. Be careful about that, because C.S. Lewis said, most of them will disappoint you. All of them will die." And I think that's good advice. Of course we want to learn from our brothers and sisters in Christ, but they can't become a Christ to us. Solomon died. For all his wisdom, he died. And his son takes over, and here's a little story for you. Uh, Jeroboam is a, approaches Solomon's son, whose name was Rehoboam. Confusing, right? And he says, hey, go easier on our people. I've been exiled. I'm coming on behalf of the Israelites. I'd like you to go a little easier on this certain group. And so uh, he says, give me three days to think about it. You know, I know my dad was harsh on you, but give me three days to think about it. So he consulted the elders, and the elders said, absolutely, this is the perfect chance. Go easy on these people, and they will be your allies forever. He says, okay. So the old people say, go easy on them. But then what does he do? Verse 10, the young men who had grown up with him replied the young men who had grown up his buddies, his school buddies. He went to them. Tell those people who've said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, make it lighter. Tell them my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy loke. I'll make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam and the king said, come back in three days, the king answered harshly, rejecting the advice of the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and he said that same line that the young men said. And then there was open rebellion from that day forth. It all could have been avoided if he would have just listened to the gray-headed. They were right there and they were saying, 
This is a great opportunity to make an ally, to make peace. But he listened to the young. He listened to his buddies. That's exactly what Isaiah is saying. You don't want that. I'm not saying young leaders are naturally, intrinsically bad. Again, Timothy did a great job and was appointed by God to lead at an early age. It does happen. But experience also happens and is valuable. I will make boys their officials. Mere children will govern them. Verse 5, the young will rise up against the old. Not a healthy situation. Now the flip side of this, I can't not throw this out. Age does not an adult make. We've seen this. You don't have to go very far to experience immature people whose numeric age is quite high. Age does not an adult make. Oftentimes, dealing with parents at the school, the child is more mature than the parent. Therein lies the problem. Just because you're old doesn't mean you're making wise choices. So I, I can't help but throw in that little caveat. But the point being, the point being, what do you trust when it comes to leadership? Because God's saying, I can take all that away. You know, we just come out of, or I guess we're still in the midst of this election time. So this is all sort of front and center on our mind. What are people trusting in? They're trusting in just the right leader, just the right party, just the right president, just the right senator, just the right initiative, just the right campaign to pull us through. And God is saying, even the best of the best of the best is nothing compared to me. Turn to me. Stop relying on some political figure and start relying on me. That's not the message that we're sending to our ourselves, though, as the media sort of this exposes this sort of very strange political war that I think we're living in. And if we can just get the right person. I looked up some of the slogans. Actually, I remembered two of these. One of them I had to verify. But of the past three, uh, Obama's was change. That was his slogan. Change or the expanded change we can believe in. Donald Trump's was make America great again. And then Joe Biden's was build back better. You know, and as someone said about political speech, in order to be a political speech maker, you have to be able to seem to say an awful lot and really not say anything at all. And all of those slogans, I think, do that. I mean, what do any of those mean? Obama's change. Well, I mean, that's, you know, that sounds, you know, change. We, we all like that. But of course, it, it doesn't mean anything until you say change what? Change how? Trump said, make America great again. We did great. We want to be great. But again, until you say how, it's just a, it's a vague sort of pointless thing. Build back better. Oh, build back. I like this. But it, again, it's vague. And you, you have to seem to be saying a lot without saying anything at all. Because, you know, you want to win as many of the populace as you can or whatever. All of those, though, they're promising. They're promising. They're promising. I can fix this. I can build this back better. I can make this great again. I can bring change that you can believe in. Vote for me. And of course, I appreciate our democratic system. I appreciate that we get a vote. I certainly do my duty in that regard. And I hope every one of you do as well from now till whenever you don't vote anymore. But that's not where my trust is. That's not where my trust is. In some leader, in some system, in some party. And I know that our leaders are old, most of them. They, they, you know, so verse 4 doesn't necessarily apply but I don't know if y'all have sensed this, some, this sort of sense of childishness about the whole thing. I, it strikes me as very, they just strike me as childish. So maybe their age is up there, but gosh, it seems childish. The yan, yan, yan in these ads, and you know, well, you know, and if we put a political ad in black and white, you know, he's obviously evil. But look at this friendly person in color. 
vote for me, right? His ads in color. You know, these smear ads, it just seems childish. It's like my Nick and Mariah wan back and forth over a toy. God can do better. God can do better. And that's where we turn to make our heart. Here's a few little other ones. You know, it gets your blood pressure up, I guess, when you start talking about current politics. So I try to tread lightly on that. It is comical, though. If you go back just a few decades, nobody cares. <laughs> you can talk about the election of 2020 and people will be fighting. Y'all just had Thanksgiving. I hope it didn't come up at your dinner table. It's best to just avoid these things. That can split a family right up. Thanksgiving's over. Give me my turkey leftover bag and I'm out. But you go back 20, 30 years, you can talk about whatever. Nobody cares. 1956, Dwight D. Eisenhower, his slogan, Peace and Prosperity. How's that for a promise, right? That's what only God can offer, by the way. Peace and prosperity. And then a kind of comical one in 1968, Richard Nixon. <laughs> this time, vote like your whole world depended on it. And it, that sounds so like 2020. This is the one that matters. This is the most important one ever. Vote like your whole... But that was half a century ago. God hadn't changed. Our hope hadn't changed. Our hope hasn't moved. And so let's trust in things that aren't fragile, like man, like humanity. Let's trust in things that last. And that brings us to our last point. How did it get like this for Israel? I'm not talking about America. I'm talking about Israel. Isaiah is talking to the southern kingdom of Israel, Judah. So they're losing the hero. They're losing the food. They're losing the water. They're losing the captain. They're losing their military, the counselor, the craftsman. Young people are ruling. Boys are in charge. It's just a great big mess. And so, of course, the, the last section of this thing has got to be, well, how did it get like this? Well, you know the answer. Sin. That's it. That's the thing. That's the answer to a million questions. That's the key that unlocks all the doors. And so let's look at our last bit. Verse 8. Jerusalem staggers, Judah is falling, their words and deeds are against the Lord. That's sin. Defying His glorious presence, the look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them, they have brought disaster upon themselves. And I was going to read more, but that's, for the sake of time, that's enough, and that gets the point across. They're defying what God's told them to do. He says do this, they do the opposite. He says don't do that, they want to do it. It's happened since the Garden of Eden. How did it get like this, this, this idea of losing our water, our food, our supplies, our leaders, our good... Well, it's, it's because of sin. And you know, it's easy to blame it on systemic sin. Like there's, there's something in the system or the institution or the overall structure that is sinful. And it's easy to kind of use that as a scapegoat because one of the advantages of that is there's really not much I can do about it. You know, if I go to Savannah and I look at this intricate harbor with all these thousands upon thousands of people moving these millions upon millions of tons of stuff, if I were to look at that and somehow know something is sinful here, well, I don't have to really sweat about it because there's nothing I can do about it. But it's when you look at individual righteousness that the burden gets placed on the individual. And that's where we're to look. I do believe there are systems that, that get corrupted to the point that they are just oppressive and wrong. But I think the systems are made up of people, just like the country is made up of people. The government is made up of people. The schools are made up of people. If the people are individually righteous, the system will purify because it's the people that make up the system. I am the most grassroots-oriented mind. of My political view of the, the society is very grassroots-oriented because I think that's how Jesus operated. Give me my 12. I'm going to minister to them. 
And it's going to grow upward and outward. Exponentially. How did He hand out the bread? He gave it to His disciples first. And then the 5,000 were fed. That's the message. That's why what we're doing here on Sunday mornings is so very important. This is the way to till the garden. The fruit is there. It's out there. The harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. And so here we are to get charged, to get the Spirit, to get the Word, and then to go out and affect from the ground up the systems that are much bigger and more immovable than that. And God can move mountains. No system is so big and so intricate and so complicated as to be immovable. What ruined it for them was sin. And I'm particularly interested in verse 9. And I'm getting down to the end of my sermon here. They parade their sin. They do not hide it. That really struck me when I read this. A lot of things in Isaiah, God, they just seem so applicable. And that one really stood out to me when preparing this. They don't even try to hide it. See, there's a difference in sinning because in a moment of temptation, you succumbed to the temptation. That happens, and it is sin, and it is bad, and it needs to be repented of. But there is a difference between that and deliberately orchestrating a lifestyle that lives it that way. You know, it's one thing to be in the checkout aisle of a grocery store and see a picture of a woman and look at it a second time when you're married and you shouldn't. And so you, you succumbed in that moment, as Jesus said, he who looks lustfully at another has committed adultery in his heart. So you succumbed in that moment to adultery. And you need to not do that and you need to repent. And that is bad, but that is different than buying an annual subscription to Sports Illustrated because you know the swimsuit edition comes. You're, you're, you're investing yourself in a scheduled plan of sin. You're, not that Sports Illustrated is sinful, but it, you know, like, it's like the cow. It depends on why you're looking at it, why you're looking at those images. There's a difference. I think that's why... Well, I, I don't even want to get... But there's a difference between succumbing to lust and entering into the covenant of marriage immorally. And I'll leave it at that. It's because the covenant of marriage is a long-term plan that I'm going to do life this way. It is a lifestyle. The word parade really stood out to me because there are parades for this sort of thing. Literal parades. And... and you're, you're planning to sin, which is different than in a moment of weakness giving in to the sin. I'll give you a less stressful example. And I, I go into this one with the caveat that the Bible does not, to my knowledge, say anything about tobacco. So I want to clear that up from the get-go. Uh, and I know people go back and forth about, you know, right, wrong, whatever. It, just, it doesn't say anything about it. So I've, and it never mattered to me. I never had to even get theological about it because for me, the decision was much easier my parents did not want me to use tobacco. So I didn't even have to get theological. All I had to do was look at the Ten Commandments. It said, honor your mother and your father. When I was a teenager, that was it. Tobacco was off limits because mom and dad said, don't use tobacco. So anytime I did, I was sinning. Not necessarily because of any sin intrinsic in the flower called tobacco or the leaf called tobacco, but because my parents told me not to and I was disobeying my parents. Honor your mother and your father. All right, so let's be clear on that. This is not about tobacco. But for me, I have no doubt it was sinful as a teenager to use tobacco. That was one of my temptations. Now here's something I noticed looking back on that. When I would go to a gas station, fill up the truck with gas, and go to pay, uh, and you'd see behind the counter the cigarettes. They're right there, and they make them look so appealing. It's just something about the colors, and of course the Marlboro Man on the horse, you know. And he, well, that's, that's a hero, you know. And so I'd give in, 
And I, knowing my parents, if they had, you know, if dad had been standing behind me, no, no, no. But I was, I was by myself. I was unsupervised. Give me a pack of Marlboros. And I'd take them and smoke them sinfully because my dad and mom, if they had known about it, would have been all on me. That, though, most of the time for me, I'm thankful to say, because I was able to kick that habit before it really dug a deep trench in my life. It dug a deep enough one that it was not an easy kick, but it got kicked. Many of the cigarettes and cigars that I bought, many, many of those packs ended half empty and broken because I would feel guilty about it. And so I'd have this half empty pack and I'd say, I just, I'm not, this is wrong. This is wrong. This, I'm not taking this home. <laughs> Trash. Many a time. And it was this moral struggle with me. I think that's better than there were these times when I just bought them and I just kept them and I had them. I had them, on, I had them in the glove box. I had them in the closet. I had them ready. I was planning to sin that way. See, it's built in. I'm, I'm not repenting of it. I'm planning it. It is baked into my lifestyle. It's in the closet and I know it's there. I'm the one that put it there. I'm the one that's leaving it there. And so every minute that goes by is an active minute that I'm sinning because I'm, I'm not even trying to hide it. I'm parading my sin. I'm not, I'm not repenting of it. You know the difference between that and the other is because when they were in my closet, when they were in my glove box, they hurt my prayers. My prayer life was very, very hindered by that because I knew I was praying without repenting. John the Baptist said, repent. Jesus said, repent. Isaiah is saying, y'all got to repent. Things feel less sinful when we do them publicly. You know, you know well, hey, I'm, not a, I'm not ashamed of it. And so I think as a culture, we've got this mentality that as long as we're willing to do it on the television publicly, as long as we're willing to parade about it, as long as we're willing to call it a lifestyle, we must not think it's all that bad. The rules haven't changed. Holiness hasn't changed. And God is saying, just because you're doing it publicly, that doesn't make it better. I think that makes it worse. You're not even ashamed of it. So what do we trust in when we sin? Ultimately, we trust that we have a better plan than God. That's the whole message. That we have a better... God is promising us this much, X, Y, and Z. What was the Eisenhower thing? Uh, peace and prosperity. That's something God promises. But anyway, so God is promising X, Y, and Z. But the devil is saying, I can do better. I can offer you something better, but you got to do it my way. That's what he promised Jesus when he tempted him for 40 days. Bow down and worship me and all these kingdoms will be yours. Jesus knew that God had promised him a kingdom. And the devil said, well, my kingdom's better and you don't have to go through a cross to get to it. But Jesus said, no, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. All the way back to the Garden of Eden. God said, don't eat that apple. Oh, no. If you eat that apple... You'll be like God. You'll know good from evil. Your eyes will be open. This is a good apple. My plan is better than God's. That's the devil's lie. He's lying it to you. He's lying it to me quite literally all the time. And I think our goal is to not trust that, but to trust, trust, trust God.
Y'all, this season has been a real pleasure for me getting to take you on the road with me to these churches and traveling around and doing the supply preaching thing. That is something I very much enjoyed doing, very much look forward to continuing to do. And that's where these messages came from. So thanks for tagging along with me. Now, another news in my publishing life anyway, you know, I'm always sending out poems, short stories, essays, and even a novel to these publishers just trying to hear yes from somebody. To date, haven't heard a lot of yeses. There's been a few, and you can check those out on my website, westyoungwriter.com. But I'm still waiting. The big the big event is the novel publisher. So I got a little bit of an update in that for those of y'all that are keeping score or keeping track. We've got an acceptance letter from a publisher in New York called Adelaide Press. And uh, several rejections from all these other Mercer University, Southern Fry Commerce, some other ones that I've tried. But there's this one. And for me, this would be the Grand Slam. It is St. Augustine's Press. And I want them so bad, I can taste it. That's the press that I would, that would be my dream press for them to say yes. And uh, I told them about the Adelaide thing. St. Augustine hadn't had my manuscript very long. But uh, I got this other offer, and so I had to email them and say, not to rush you, but when do you think you'll have an answer? And they said, the second week of February, they'll have an answer for me. So that's this coming week. And they may just totally forget about me, and I may not get an answer at all. Or I may get a no, or there is just that one in a thousand chance that I'll hear a yes. So I'm very excited to check my email this week, more than I should. But I'm going to be checking it, and I'll certainly have an announcement if I hear good news. Appreciate your prayers in that regard. And in all regards, keep praying, keep pressing on. And until the next season airs, I hope things go your way. Thank you.